Conversation 360 podcast and this podcast series called Asia and the West. I'm your host, Susan Bird. On Asia and the West, we showcase people whose life, work, and experience can shed light on what is taking place between these two critically important parts of our world. We're especially focused on China, but you'll hear from people with fascinating things to say about other parts of Asia as well. In my work and visits to Asia, I've gotten to know many extraordinary people. Among them is Timothy Blakely, whom I first met in Hong Kong. Timothy is a litigation partner in the global law firm Morris & Forrester's Hong Kong office and a member of the firm's Security Litigation Enforcement and White Collar Defense Practice Group. He represents multinational and Chinese clients in various industries, telecommunications, biotech, publishing, pharmaceuticals, and financial services. He's a regular speaker and writer on topics involving cross-border shareholder litigation, securities enforcement and investigations, and risk mitigation. He also conducts internal investigations of potential violations of anti-corruption laws, leads pre-acquisition anti-corruption-related due diligence, and regularly provides advice, counsel, and training to clients about anti-corruption-related issues. He recently was named to Global Investigation Review's inaugural 40 Under 40 list of the world's leading investigation lawyers under the age of 40. Timothy graduated from Bowdoin College in the state of Maine, received his law degree from the University of Pennsylvania, and he has served as a law clerk to the U.S. federal courts in the Eastern District of Pennsylvania. He's also a solicitor in Hong Kong. You'll hear why Timothy loves his work and relishes the change that is taking place at breakneck speed. Here's a sample. I mean, the opportunities are are tremendous, and I think the opportunities are evolving. And for me, one of the very interesting things about uh, about living and working here is that the things that cross my desk every day very often are things I've never seen before, and they're new challenges. And I think that being in a in a society and being in a country that is so transitive at the moment and is um, is dealing with change that's happening, I think much more quickly than in other places, is is a very exciting thing. And I think that opportunities will continue to evolve. As to how China and the West stack up as competitors in the innovation race, Timothy takes a different tack. My view about statements like China will pass the West in innovation or will surpass the West in innovation, I think that's too narrow a question. Uh, because as I alluded to earlier, I mean, what I'm seeing in my work and what I'm seeing in the society here, what I'm seeing when I'm in Shanghai and when I'm in Beijing is that there is just a, a huge amount of cross-pollination of thought. And there's a huge amount of cross-pollination of ideas. And there's a huge amount of cross-pollination of capital. And all of those things, I think, are leading to new and different innovation worldwide. He points out how the rapid change has taken people by surprise and that kids have no concept of what China was like before they were born. Uh, I mean, the remarkable thing as I think about this and as I talk to some of my partners who, who grew up in a very different China than the China that exists today is how rapidly things have changed. And the fact of the matter is children in middle-class families now um, may not fully appreciate and certainly don't remember the fact that their parents grew up in a very different 
world um, with very different challenges and don't know what it is to be hungry. Um, I'm using that as much as a metaphor as anything else. We'll talk about these views and much, much more. So welcome to Conversation 360 podcast, Timothy. Thanks for coming on our Asia and the West series program. Thanks very much, Susan. I'm pleased to be here. So when we talk about the conversations taking place between Asia and the West, what comes to mind when we say that? What, what does that mean in your, in your head? Well, in my mind, and as I've spent more and more time uh, in Asia, uh, I've come to realize more and more that there's this tension between sort of historical views and uh, cultural realities in the East and the West. And the fact of the matter is that there's more uh, interconnection than ever before. And so I see these tensions playing out in in my work, um, you know, as different conceptions of the rule of law and the role of government and the independence of the judiciary, for example, um, compete as parties negotiate between these different systems. Uh, but even more broadly, I see it um, as people are exchanging in the educational system, people are studying in universities cross-border, and young people, young professionals, are beginning their careers very often with uh, a foot in both worlds. And it's very interesting to me how it is evolving to be a, a world that has to account for these differences and has to integrate them in some way. Hmm. And how would you say the dialogue has shifted at all? It sounds like you've already partly answered that question during the time you've been living and working in Hong Kong. Even within those five years, have you seen that? I have. I have. And, you know, you know of course, um, you know, these are interesting times sort of globally. Um, but, you know, with respect to China in particular, I just see more and more and more young professionals who grew up in China, um, who grew up in middle-class households, who uh, were seeking opportunity, who very often studied overseas, um, gained exposure to different ideas, to different systems, to different training, and now are starting to come back. And in my practice, which um, which really bridges both worlds, those people are particularly valuable because they have cultural and language fluencies that are really necessary to bridge the divide and to advise, for example, Chinese clients who are um, who are encountering and trying to navigate um, what is a historically been a very foreign um, legal regime that's applying to them in many ways as they do business overseas. Well, let's talk about that world of business, specifically the regulatory and anti-corruption areas of business. That practice has really um, become more and more important to everyone. I remember in an earlier conversation with me, you had mentioned that as more Chinese companies expand outside China, they encounter these different regimes, different expectations, and, of course, vice versa. Um, how, how has that been developing? Uh, I mean, it's, it's, a very interesting, um, it's a very interesting world and a very interesting um, set of developments. When I first came to China to, to do work um, five, six years ago, 
there was a huge focus in the Chinese um, on the ch- many Chinese companies were doing business in the United States for the first time and were encountering um, U- U.S. and Western expectations around corruption and what's legal and what's illegal and where you draw the line uh, between the hospitality and graft, for example. And were navigating those issues for the first time and they were very foreign and different. Um, obviously, things politically in China have evolved in material ways since then. China itself has uh, adopted and aggressively pursued, at least publicly, uh, aggressively published um, efforts to crack down on corruption domestically as well. So the conversation, in, in my view, was largely seen through a Western lens five years ago, and that's been inverted in many ways so that the same Chinese companies that I was dealing with um, and explaining how U.S. regulators might view certain conduct are now much more concerned with how that same conduct may be viewed domestically. So there's been um, a convergence of sorts uh, of that conversation in just the last five years. And I, I, I know that so many Chinese companies have now listed their companies on U.S. and other Western exchanges uh, and sometimes have not been prepared for the corporate governance requirements that they find in the West. Is that still true or is that something that that was more two years ago? Are we still seeing that where they prefer to keep control of their company and their activities among a limited group of people and not have to deal with all this corporate governance stuff that is so core to Western exchanges? Yes, I think that that's, um, if, if we're painting with a very broad brush, I think that that's still true. There still is this strong ethos in China of the chairman's company. And, you know, many Chinese companies, I think, a decade ago, um, sought to list their companies overseas because that was seen as a, a sign of high prestige and a sign of how successful their company was, and it was a badge of honor. And I can recall going to conferences years ago and companies and, and chairmen and executives I would meet at, at Chinese companies would prominently display on their business cards that they were um, listed in New York or that they were listed uh, in Hong Kong or overseas. That was a very important badge to have. And of course, the expectations of of what that um, of what that would mean from a corporate governance perspective and from a legal and regulatory perspective were not fully considered or fully understood uh, at the time. I think with respect to many of those companies, and in the last five or six years in particular, many of those companies have sought to delist and come back off the exchanges. Um, and one of the, I think the real problems or challenges that many of those companies had was that they frankly did not have the personnel with the right skill sets and exposure to execute corporate governance uh, as might be expected by regulators who are sitting in New York or or London or, or Hong Kong for that matter. And and so we've seen an exodus of sorts um, for many Chinese companies, and that's created lots of other opportunities for PE funds and, and other uh, investors who are taking them private with the thought of 
of doing their capital structure in some different way. Um, but now there are some very strong Chinese companies that have um, have been very successful uh, as listed companies and have been very successful in staffing internally with people who can um, really help the companies manage their internal governance in a way that's expected and compliant um, and can understand what the regulatory expectations are um, overseas and execute those expectations at the company in a way that is very responsible. So I think that as this trend that I mentioned earlier of, of more and more and more young Chinese professionals being fluent in both expectations of the West and the opportunities uh, in China um, are being staffed at these companies and hired at these companies and eventually will rise from sort of um, executing roles at the companies to mid-management and maybe even leading these companies at some point. I think that we'll see stronger corporate governance and corporate governance that more closely aligns with what we see from leading companies around the world. So now there's a downturn in the Chinese economy, and I'm interested in what kind of an impact you see that having on the businesses that you know well there. Um, what's really happening? How? What kind of impact is this having, and what do you see for the future prospects? Well, I guess I see that from two different perspectives, and um, both of these perspectives are, are lenses through which I, I see business here. Um, so in one perspective, if we look at how Western companies and Western capital invest in China, um, when China was just growth and when the expectations were that your investments in a Chinese company would be profitable and you would be able to uh, be very successful in the investments one way or the other, people tended to be less concerned about things like corporate governance and um, due diligence with respect to uh, assets and people. And people would overlook poor business practices uh, at a company that they were looking to invest in with the expectation and the understanding that the company would still be profitable, the company would still be successful, and the investor would be able to get a return on their investment in the short term uh, before any of those weaknesses that might otherwise exist in the business would manifest themselves. And the slowing growth in China has changed that construct in my view. And now people who are looking to invest in China no longer have the promise of quick short-term gain at the same degree that they had before. And so it's changed the risk-reward the risk -reward equation as people look to invest in China. And so people are now more concerned than ever with um, with who is running the company, with how it's being run, with what business practices it has, with who its business partners are, with um, the strength of the contracts and the internal legal controls of the company and what that may mean long term. And people are being more conservative in their investments uh, for that reason. And I see that manifesting itself through the lens of the law, given, given my profession, but I tend to think it's more economically driven than legally driven. You know, people's concerns over whether uh, a company is legally compliant uh, often are just as driven by what their expectations are with respect to economic return. 
and the timeline of birth expectations. That's fascinating because that really is a shift. Now, uh, if we're talking about this downturn, what about the individuals? We know that people born in the last 30 years in China have been living in a country where growth has been ex exponential and simply expected to continue. What's the mood there now, especially among the middle class? I think that that's, a, that's the question uh, in many ways that's facing China. And uh, I mean, the remarkable thing as I think about this and as I talk to some of my partners who, who grew up in a very different China than the China that exists today is how rapidly things have changed. And the fact of the matter is children in middle-class families now um, may not fully appreciate and certainly don't remember the fact that their parents grew up in a very different world um, with very different challenges and don't know what it is to be hungry um, as much as a metaphor as anything else. Um, so all they've seen is opportunity and success, but I think that for parents who are looking at their children and who want their children to continue to succeed, um, are more and more concerned that the avenues that they had to success are not as certain as they used to be. And I think that that concern can be seen through the great number of Chinese uh, middle class who are choosing to send their children overseas to study. And they don't see those opportunities necessarily in, in China, and that's the way ahead to go overseas. And I've just been pretty struck by the statistics of the number of people who don't come back to China. And um, I think 50% of the Chinese who, who study overseas um, and even higher percentages in the hard sciences for people who get PhDs overseas, for example, eventually don't return to China. And I think that that speaks a little bit about how people are viewing opportunities in China, that they're just not as confident in them as they used to be. And, you know, especially in China in the middle class, um, I think it's becoming particularly challenging with respect to housing in the cities and people who, um, once property ownership was legalized, were very active and very eager to go out and acquire property. It's becoming much and much and much more challenging for people to do that because of how how expensive property has gotten, how scarce it's gotten, um, and the opportunities for young professionals to do that are just smaller. So I think that it's creating um, this mismatch between sort of expectations and the actual feeling about what opportunities are available. And I don't think that that is unique to China, frankly. I mean, I think that we've seen those same... Uh, frustrations uh, manifest themselves in the United States. We've seen it in the UK and sort of those feelings about lack of opportunity in the US and UK are manifesting themselves in very active political um, outcomes at this point. And, you know, they're playing out very publicly right now. And one real question is whether or not that can happen in China and whether it will happen in China. But it's something that's very dynamic at the moment and very interesting. Well, you bring up a couple of fascinating things in there. First of all, the view that on the one hand, some people say that China's uh, brightest and wealthiest are leaving the country in droves. And that appears to certainly be true uh, of those who 
come here, come to the West for education and then don't go back. On the other hand, those who do go back, as you indicated earlier, are often the people that are the source of innovation and of new leadership within the companies they end up in. So there's kind of a fascinating dual a, a dual view of this, I think. The, um, the, the potential for this really becoming a problem is, is interesting everywhere, as you say, both in the West and in China. I'm especially interested in your thoughts about the willingness to speak up around issues that are bothering people. We know that uh, this, it's not a democracy, and there are some that think that it's still very difficult to speak your mind in in China, and yet I'm told that it's really in response to public attitudes that has caused China, to, the, the government, to take action around issues like in the environment, how clean the air is, because people have just simply indicated they're very upset about it. What about this willingness to speak up and say, this isn't working for me? You were indicating that that eventually this could be a problem if people see not enough opportunity for themselves, and how will they express that? Well, that's a, it's a very good observation, Susan. I think that there really is uh, different avenues for voicing um, opinions in China than there have been in the past, and the advent of WeChat and Weibo and some of the other technological method is methods for communicating quickly um, and in a mass way has changed the conversation in many ways in China. So, for example, some of the early days of the anti-corruption campaign that's going on now in China were spurred in many ways by public outrage at government officials wearing Rolexes and driving really nice cars. And there was a, a spate for a while of people taking pictures of these things and they would circulate widely. And there became a, a groundswell of discontent around those issues. And the Chinese government obviously heard those things and there's been a response to those things. So I think that there is more of a dialogue um, between the government and the public than there used to be in China. And there's undoubtedly um, an avenue to voice discontent that didn't used to exist. That doesn't mean that there is full free expression, uh, and I think that that is not even necessarily the goal, but I think that this new dynamic is something that must be accounted for, can't be denied, and is affecting policy and the perception of policy uh, in China. Well, it certainly it appears that it's going to be more and more difficult to isolate Chinese people from Western views and approaches, not just Western, but just what's happening around the around the globe, whether it's in media or elsewhere. Uh, and and I, I think you're right. It appears that the jury's still out on what will happen when people get more frustrated and start expressing that in, in a broader sense. Now, I know you represent a number of tech companies, so you have a good sense of what's going on in China in terms of innovation. And we see that there is, in fact, a great deal of innovation in China in it. And I think you even had remarked to me at one point that some of the Chinese companies are even surpassing, from the standpoint of innovation, some things that are done elsewhere. 
um, will China be able to surpass America in innovation, or is this? Uh, what's your thought about that? I, I think I think you're the one who told me once China won't do that. The pie will just get bigger. I thought that was an interesting comment. Wasn't that you who mentioned that to me once? Yeah, I think that that is. I think that's an accurate statement, and in some ways, I um, my view about statements like China will pass the West in innovation or will surpass the West in innovation, I think that's too narrow a question. Uh, because as I alluded to earlier, I mean, what I'm seeing in my work and what I'm seeing in the society here, what I'm seeing when I'm in Shanghai and when I'm in Beijing is that there is just a, a huge amount of cross-pollination of thought. And there's a huge amount of cross-pollination of ideas. And there's a huge amount of cross-pollination of capital. And all of those things, I think, are leading to new and different innovation worldwide. And we have seen it in some of the Chinese companies that have just been at the very forefront of technological advancement. I think of, of Alibaba and Tencent, who are, are just remarkably innovative, not just in, in the tech space, but in how people communicate, in how people consume, uh, in how people bank, in how people engage in, 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 uh, in social interactions. And in, in many ways, the regulatory regime in China is gray enough that innovative companies can move pretty quickly sometimes, um, especially Chinese companies are able to do that in a, in, a, in a more safe way. So I think that that innovation will continue. I think that that innovation will be something that's watched very carefully in the West. I think that people will be taking good ideas from Chinese companies. I think that good Chinese entrepreneurs will be investing overseas and taking those ideas overseas. Uh, I think that um, Western investors will be investing in these Chinese companies as well. So I think that that innovation is something that will um, be a tie that, that raises all boats. Um, whether you know it's a competition between the East and West is is less of a interesting thought to me than how integrated the overall advancement is. And frankly, I think it sounds awfully exciting too that that the dig digital disruption is coming from lots of different sources, uh, not not just the West, and and that uh, and that the two can cross pollinate in a way that you just described seems thrilling to me. Um, in it, when you, it, it's pretty obvious about Alibaba and Tencent and some others. What about the state-owned uh, company, the SOEs as they're called? Are are they? They're not as prone to innovation as I understand it. Is that right? Are they just sort of another whole animal? Well, I mean, they are another whole animal, but you know, China is very mindful of that fact as well, and has been out there and has publicly announced SOE reform, with an understanding that the old model of, um, you know, the the uh, SOEs as being very hierarchical and, and management driven and not innovative necessarily is not one that works. Uh, long term. And so I think that um, some of the very strong SOEs um, are also investing in 
young professionals who are well-educated, who have multiple fluencies, who are uh, well-versed in both corporate governance and um, corporate innovation-related ideas, and also are looking to be innovative and moving forward as well. So I think that that also is an evolving trend. So what about the increased pressure regarding privacy issues? Are there big differences in the views about privacy in China versus the United States? And, and what role does government censorship play in there? Uh, I think that there are, um, there are differences, of course, but the, the fact of the matter is this whole concept of personal privacy is revelatory in, in many ways in China. And it's something that I can tell you Chinese employees, for example, are very, very, very mindful of. And in my work, uh, often what I'm doing is, is working with companies to investigate allegations of wrongdoing internally. And often that involves uh, investigating and speaking with employees and looking at their personal uh, information. And what I can tell you is that Chinese employees are more and more and more tuned now than ever before to their own privacy rights in their own data. And that concept is, I think, born out of this increasing sense of individualism and personal rights that is evolving in China and is something that you know, is manifesting itself in a cultural way across different disciplines, but it's something that I certainly see in the, in the space of privacy. That's really, that's really very new, isn't it? That 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 whole sense because here in the West, it's it's extreme how people are so so concerned about anybody getting their hands on their data. I, I didn't realize it was becoming so true in China as well. So I would imagine that's a fairly new thing. It is It is new, and I, and I think it's evolving. And, uh, I mean, it wasn't that long ago where, uh, I mean, again, in the last two decades, uh, China has come a long way, but it wasn't that long ago where people were, um, were forcibly connected into, uh, into a very state-centered regime. Um, where individual rights and individual um, property and individual privacy interests were not at the forefront of thought. And so as that has evolved, I think people are um, evolving into uh, understanding and appreciating and, and exerting what they see as their private rights. It's really fascinating that the, the tremendous arc this, this, this country has taken from bringing people up from poverty to this amazing uh, engine of energy and ambition. It's, it's uh, quite, and I think these next several years with the downturn business are going to be really pretty important. Timothy, what other issues would you, do you think about regarding this whole East meets West um, arena? Are there other things that you think are especially fascinating to you at the moment that you're observing? Well, I mean, the one the one area that um, you know I just find very very interesting is um, is education, and I mean, education is such a powerful social tool, and uh, I think it has historically been viewed as a very powerful social tool. 
And as more and more and more Chinese young people are being educated overseas and being exposed to a diverse group of ideas, um, I think that the Chinese education system uh, more largely uh, construed is going to have to evolve uh, as well. I mean, there are more and more private schools than ever before in China. There are more and more international schools than ever before in China. The thirst for those things is very, very strong. Parents want their children to be exposed to uh, different ideas. They want them to be on a track to be able to go to foreign universities. And I think that the ability for um, you know, the state to control uh, education and doctrine and, um, and history and facts uh, is more and more limited. So I think that as education and people's views of education and people's consumption of education continues to evolve, I think that that will be a huge social driver uh, at the end of the day and is something that, um, you know, the government in China and, and the and the and businesses in China and people living in China are going to have to evolve with as well. Well, it's interesting, especially if you regard certain kinds of educational systems as being more prone to excite innovation and innovative kind of thinking, where you, where, where a lot of emphasis is put on challenging authority as opposed to um, repeating what 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 is simply being taught to you. And if that's true, then that's another driver for um, the ability of the Chinese to come up with disruptive uh, inventions and ideas of their own, right? And, and another thing, somebody just told me the other day that uh, she knew of a group of young parents in Beijing who were who had actually created this kind of small community in the suburbs of Beijing, they've all moved there and they're doing essentially a cooperative homeschooling of their own kids because they, they're they trying to prepare them to be educated in the West and higher education. And they're, they're, they've decided they're going to take the grade school level into their own hands. I, I hadn't heard about that kind of thing being done, but I guess that underscores what you're saying about people having a great deal of ambition about their kids being educated in a way that is... Um, uh, perhaps more, more innovative, more questioning than the than the traditional sense. Is, have you heard of that? Yes, I've heard. There, there are lots of efforts like that, and frankly, there are concerns uh, in China that the traditional method of education, which is so heavily um, uh, rote based, learning based, and and test driven, um, and hugely competitive, and huge pressures on on, on kids, and it's. It's um, a very strong uh, social force here in, in Hong Kong as well, where the traditional education is, is very competitive and rigid and, and driven in very specific ways, that there is this desire to um, take children and not put them through that very formulaic system and the pressures that are inherent in that, in that formulaic system and to expose them to other ways of thinking and as you said earlier, allows you to challenge authority to develop, frankly, your individualism in ways that allow innovation ultimately to be fostered. Well, it sounds as if ultimately you continue to be highly optimistic about your life there and the kind of work 
you're able to do and the prospects for China. Do I, am I reading that correctly? Are you still feeling pretty bullish? Uh, I mean, the opportunities are, are tremendous, and I think the opportunities are evolving. And for me, one of the very interesting things about, uh, about living and working here is that the things that cross my desk every day very often are things I've never seen before, and they're new challenges. And I think that being in a, in a society and being in a country that is so transitive at the moment and is, um, is dealing with change that's happening, I think, much more quickly than in other places is, is a very exciting thing. And I think that opportunities will continue to evolve. Um, and I, uh, you, you, I noticed you mentioned earlier that China was slowing down. And it may be slowing down, but it's still changing very, very rapidly. And, um, in that change, um, are a multitude of opportunities. And for me, it's been a very exciting uh, place to be. And I know that many other people here continue to be energized by those opportunities. Oh, that's terrific. That's a, that's a great note on which to, uh, which to conclude. So I really thank you, Timothy, for your insights. If this is the first time you're listening to Asia and the West podcast, please subscribe on your podcast app of choice. There are plenty more conversations with fascinating people from where this came. And please rate and review us on iTunes. As you may know, iTunes gives credit to reviews and ratings, and the more credit we get, the more people can discover us. And please tell your friends. Word of mouth is a powerful way to spread the word about the Conversation 360 podcast and this Asia and the West series. There's more information on our website, www.conversation360podcast.com. The show's Twitter handle is at Conv360Podcast, that's C-O-N-V 360 Podcast, and my personal Twitter is at Susan W. Bird, spelled B-I-R-D. Thanks for listening. <laughs>